You're listening to Women Heard, presented by New York Women in Communications. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser Ilkovich. Today's episode features a conversation between Dusty Jenkins, president of New York Women in Communications and the global head of communications for Spotify, and Sally Sussman, executive vice president and chief corporate affairs officer at Pfizer. As part of our new Women Heard podcast, we're thrilled to be sharing conversations with incredible women. We will be featuring conversations like this one from live events, as well as exclusive interviews. This conversation features amazing advice about networking, navigating career changes, and effective leadership, as well as a candid chat about what it was like inside Pfizer at the beginning and throughout the COVID-19 pandemic so far. I love how this conversation celebrates women working in communications, and I'm sure you will too. This chat is part of the exciting new In The Room series, brought to you by New York Wiki. They'll be having more live conversations like this one, and if you want more information about them, please visit nywiki.org, that's n-y-w-i-c-i.org, to learn all about future events. A very special thank you to Dusty, Sally, the team at Meredith, and everyone else who helped make this event happen. To learn more about our newly rebranded podcast, Women Heard, please visit nywiki.org slash podcast. That's n-y-w-i-c-i dot org slash podcast. We'd love for you to subscribe as well as rate and review the show on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you subscribe, you will be notified about future new episodes. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this very special episode of Women Heard. everyone and thank you so much for being here. I'm Dusty Jenkins and I'm the president of New York Women in Communication and I am also the global head of communications for Spotify. And so thanks for being with us. I know we had a couple of drop-offs as we're all experiencing this evolving pandemic and so having this event on this night feels very appropriate and so excited to get into a really great discussion with Sally. Um, But before we do that, I just wanted to give a few shout outs. And first and foremost, I want to thank Nancy and the team at Meredith for hosting us tonight. They were so generous to offer the space. Thank you for having us. Nancy Weber has been involved uh, with New York Wiki for years, and she is an incredible advocate on behalf of this organization. And so she is not here tonight because um, she had a COVID exposure, but I know that there are several members from her team. So thank you all so much. And then I also wanted to mention um, something that you're going to be seeing come out from New York Wiki, and that is a white paper that really gets into what has happened to women in the workforce, specifically in the communications industry as a result of this pandemic. And so I've had an early look at the data, and so I won't give it all away here, but it is incredibly staggering how many women have left the workforce on the whole, as we're all aware. Many of you have read these articles. But I don't think we realize how hard hit our specific industry is. And that is really all facets of our industry, from the advertising side to areas like communication, social media, and PR. Think about the events industry. 
if you were a member of an events team for two years, there have been no events. And so many of these women left thinking that it would be a temporary leave and have just never returned. And so this white paper will get into that data and really shine a light on the impact of the pandemic on our industry. And so I look forward to sharing that information with you. And then it will be up to all of us, what do we do about that? And so how do we as an organization really tackle this project? And that is part of what we're doing with this new series that we're introducing. And so our In the Room series is really going to get into shining a light and opening the doors back up on this industry. And so we know that convening, networking, learning from one another, getting together, talking, sharing ideas, sharing innovation, that is the lifeblood of this industry. And for two years, we haven't been able to convene. In fact, this is our first in-person event with the exception of our Matrix Awards that we've had in over two and a half years. And so it's so good to be with you all. Um, but as we think about this white paper, we want to introduce this notion of this in the room series to encourage and open the door for us all to return together. Even if we're masked, even if we have to sit a little further apart, the idea that we can all enjoy one another and share for, with each other again. And so that brings us to tonight. So I am thrilled to introduce someone that I'm actually incredibly proud to call a friend. But in our industry, there are certain people, individuals, who are just powerhouses. And that's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Words like trailblazer. Sally Sussman is a powerhouse and a trailblazer. And she has had a front row seat to one of the most unforgettable times in our entire world. And so I'm excited to get into a conversation with Sally. She has a storied career. As many of you know, she was at Estee Lauder. She's been at American Express. She's a mentor. She's an advocate. She's an outspoken leader in our field. And she is going to share with us what it's been like to be at the helm of one of the companies who is the major voice of this pandemic. And so, Sally, please join me on the stage. We're excited to welcome you. Thank you so much, Dusty. That was so, so lovely introduction. And I'm thrilled to be here. We're excited to get into this discussion. So Sally, I thought I would just open with a question um, that really goes to the start of this pandemic. And so, um, but before I do, you've been at Pfizer for some time. You've obviously watched the company go through lots of change, scrutiny over the years. Um, and so obviously, you know, this is probably tested you and given you an entirely different experience as a leader. Could you just talk a little bit about your history and career at Pfizer so far? Sure, I would be happy to do that. And I just have to first thank you, Dusty, for creating this forum, for inviting me. Um, we were just reminiscing that we met when, I think you were just starting at Spotify, and um, I'd heard you come to town, and I was eager to meet you, and we met in my office and had a cup of coffee. And I knew immediately that you're going to shake it up and do great things for our for our profession. And the fact that you are leading um, New York Wiki is such a way to give back. And so, if you if anywhere, anytime, any place, I'll be there. Oh, that that means a lot coming from Sally. And the part of that story I wouldn't want you to miss is that I moved to town and I didn't know very many people here. And Sally was one of the first people to reach out to me. 
And not only did she say, welcome to New York, and I'm very excited to get to know you, but she said, let's have a cup of coffee. Come to my office. Let's get together. And it was a real treat. And you offered to introduce me to several people across the industry, which you did. And so again, those olive branches that get extended in this field, I'm forever grateful. Well, it's my pleasure. It's great to be here. And I won't dodge your, your question. Okay, so let let's me, jump I'll in. Answer your question. Um, I, I went to Pfizer 14 years ago because Pfizer had a terrible reputation. And the whole big pharma industry had terrible reputation. I had worked at two companies, as Dusty mentioned, American Express, the credit card company, and Estee Lauder, the consumer products beauty company. People love these companies. I mean, they have so much reputational wind at their back that you know everywhere you go, people were just applauding these companies. And then I got a call from a recruiter about looking at Pfizer, and I thought to myself, but they make life-saving medicine. This, there's something wrong here. I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna fix that problem. And it might take me a year, two years, but I'm gonna fix it. Whoever's laughing knows this is a very funny point because um, I had worked there for 12 years and I, maybe I made a little progress, um, but it really, I learned a lot. I re did the research on why people didn't trust the pharmaceutical companies, and I, I worked hard on the things I thought we needed to do, but it really wasn't until the pandemic that we had an opportunity to show our best selves. And we'd recently written a new purpose statement. We'd had a new CEO come in, breakthroughs that change patients' lives. So when the pandemic hit, we thought, this is our chance. We have to prove, we mean it, put up or shut up moment. Are we gonna have this, live up to this purpose statement or not? And my thought, my hope, my prayer, my wish was that if we can do that breakthrough in science, this is our time to make our breakthrough in reputation. So we went from being a laggard, a low industry down there with tobacco and other tough industries, to being a top 10 global brand in, in all industries. So it's, it's, been, incredible. it's been extraordinary. And so, Sally, I know there are probably many people who want to hear about the state of things today, given Omicron and all the changes we're watching constantly evolving this pandemic. But I want to go back to the very beginning. And so you talked about Pfizer and that reputational challenge. And we all, as, as communicators, face times when our company is under scrutiny for whatever reason. And it's almost like the how do you rise to the occasion? And in these jobs, you feel the weight of that because really a, a lot of that decision sits with you, how you respond, what you say, how you galvanize the employees. And so I just would love to understand that moment when you knew how significant this was going to be. And so for those in the audience, I, prior to coming to Spotify, led communications at Target which was a storied retailer. We'd done designer collaborations and we were beloved. And then one dreary day in December, December 15th, around 3.30 to be exact, my phone rang and there was a gentleman by the name of Brian Krebs on the other line and he said, I'm about to report that Target has suffered a massive data breach and hundreds of millions of people have been impacted and you have five minutes. And Sally, I remember thinking, 
oh my gosh, my heart sank. Is this real? What do I do? And then I took off running to our general counsel's office <laughs> and I never left the office. <laughs> and it kept snowing in Minnesota and it was miserable. I would love to know, was there a moment? Because, you know, looking back now, there was a lot of speculation that maybe we should have known earlier. Was there a moment that you knew this was going to be significant? I do. And um, I feel the pain even of that story. I can feel it in that moment. Um, so it was March 8. And, um, you know, New York was already getting a little funky. Um, I remember my wife was out of town. I was walking home from a dinner and I was picking up a few things at the store and it was just getting kind of creepy. Um, and I go into the office the next day and my boss was there. Um, I work for Pfizer CEO Albert Borla. And um, he was supposed to be in Greece giving a speech, but he had flown there. And by the time he got there, it had canceled because of this thing we'd never heard of, the COVID-19 virus. So he came back and he called all of us into the room, the executive committee, and he sat us down and he said, we need to do three things. One, we need to take care of our 90,000 employees around the world. They're going to need our help. Two, we need to have a steady supply of medicine to continuously flow around the world because cancer and pain and arthritis and all these other things, they're not going to go on holiday during a pandemic. This was before we even heard of supply chain problems. He said, we're going to have to protect our supply chain. And third, we're going to find a vaccine in eight months. And I thought to myself, oh my God, it's a crisis and my boss has lost his mind. <laughs> He's just lost his mind because that takes usually 10 to 12 years. Um, P.S., we also closed the office the next day. Wow. And we've been working remote ever since. Um, we're now a little bit back flexibly, but it was in that moment when I thought, oh my gosh, you know, you never think you're going to find yourself in this position. Um, I was also very, very fortunate that from that moment forward, um, we had a small committee we called Project Lightspeed that ran the project. And I was on that team because my boss knew that there was going to be a huge public dimension to the vaccine. Negotiating with governments around the world, um, dealing with vaccine hesitancy, a new technology that had never made a drug before, mRNA technology. And at every step along the way, there were dimensions that impacted the public's perception of Pfizer and a role for me to play in that regard. So Sally, I, I distinctly remember wiping my oranges down with bleach wipes. I'm horrified that I did that. And then something I would have never dreamed of doing months before. I was, I was afraid of chemicals, and yet we all made these massive changes so quickly, and you all went to work and did the impossible. And so tell me how you handled your team in this moment, because I know you're such an incredible leader. At the same time that you're trying to solve one of the world's greatest challenges of all time, you're also dealing with real people who are scared, who have kids who have been sent home from school. So as a leader, how did you handle that? Great question. And I'm very honored to have a couple members of the team and former members of the team here. So um, they can correct me if I'm wrong. But I actually think we were 
the fortunate ones because even though we were tired and this project Lightspeed, it, it became a, a project that met every day at 5 p.m. And, and I could tell you a little bit about the management of that. Yes. But, but when you're in a crisis, we're, we're all in the crisis. None of us escaped COVID and it's all that it wrought. And so to be able to feel on the front line and to have that much purpose running through your veins every day. Um, you know, my team, I feel like my team just rose to the occasion and especially the media and communications team who work every day and have worked every day to answer the questions, to put out the information. Um, but I didn't have to do much because, you know, I, I think it's harder if you're in an industry where you don't, I mean, we led the news every day every for day. nine months, 10 months, still, still happening. Maybe, I don't know when it will end that we're leading the news. So that kind of purpose-driven enthusiasm and motivation solves itself. I mean, we're, you know, you, we're starting to think about things like burnout and we have, we just starting next week, uh, we do focus weeks where you get to have weeks without meetings so you can think. Um, but the, the feeling of what we were doing, in fact, um, I think it was maybe your husband who uh, said something very nice to me on the way in because both he and your daughter, he got boosted and she got her vaccine. Yes. So we've been receiving these stories all the time. You know, people send a picture of their scene. They say, saw my grandma for the first time in two years. Or they send a, a video of, you know, their, their kid being able to hug another kid. And that is more than any money or compensation is that joy, really a big joy. So take us into this moment. It would be helpful to understand, obviously, you had to establish this, this process to move quickly, but I'm sure that communication amongst the working teams was critical. Tell us, like, what was the cadence like? Was there a daily meeting? Did you get regular updates? How, how did you handle sort of the rapid fire around this internally? We had a daily meeting. Well, first of all, we called the project Project Lightspeed. Lightspeed, love that. Not warp speed. Okay, um, I'm not sure warp speed is a real thing, but lightspeed is a real thing. And um, our CEO decided to appoint a project manager for lightspeed himself. Okay, that that was key. I don't think there was anybody else in the company that could have had the authority to to do that. And Project Lightspeed team met every day at 5 p.m. and anybody who was working on it relative to that day's agenda could come. So some days there might be 20 people on the light speed call, and other days there might be 200 people on the light speed call. And no decision went overnight. Everything was decided and resolved on these calls. And um, there sometimes would be screaming, crying, laughing, uh, you know, pulling of hair. And this is, it was in that context of light speed that we made the really big decisions, such as the decision not to take any government money because we didn't want our hands to be tied in that way. Or to go with a new technology, mRNA technology, as opposed to the traditional one that many great companies like J&J &J and AstraZeneca chose a traditional technology. Only two companies Pfizer and Moderna went with the new technology. Based on the news today, that was a very wise call. It appears that it was. Um, how to solve the fact that in the beginning, 
The vaccine had to be stored at minus 70 Celsius. How, how would we transport it around the world? So these calls were crucial. And, um, you know, the communications element of it, um, really I tried to do a couple of things. And probably the most important thing I felt was to document what we were doing. So I, I became the chief documentarian at Pfizer and I embedded a, two teams, a print team from the Wall Street Journal, they were there with us, and a film crew from Nat Geo. And I went with It's so incredible that you thought to do it that. It was ballsy. It was ballsy. It is. Um, it was scary. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, this is so great. I'm, I'm filming this disaster. Um, <laughs> it'll be like the Titanic, you know? <laughs> um, and that ended up being really valuable to us because when we had along the way, particularly at the end, the, the readouts, the next morning, the Wall Street Journal dropped a big story. I mean, an eight-page story. And they had a headline, Pfizer vaccine success. The secret of it was crazy deadlines and a pushy CEO. And I love that because that's what it was. I mean, it was just an audacious dream. And if we'd said, we want to do a vaccine, and not, not in, in 12 years, but in six years, we would have just done it the way we did it and tried to do it more quickly. But when someone says to you, no, you're going to do it in a tenth of the time, you have to crush everything you know about how you do it. And so instead of recruiting a clinical trial over two years, I remember the woman came in and she said, I, I, can, I can do this, this FDA registration in two months. That would be record-breaking, but I think I can do it. And Albert said, two weeks. Two weeks stopped. And this kind of constant crushing of the process and just blowing up of the bureaucracy and then having the communications there documenting it all was really thrilling. And I think even what you said about the cold storage, you know, the idea that we along the way as the public understood what you were up against and how challenging this was, you know, everyone knew this would be an incredible feat if we could get this done. But to know the challenges that you were facing from the inside, I think that made you appreciate it so much more. It, the whole world was watching and we opted for pretty extreme uh, transparency. So one example of a transparency decision was um, when we came up with our clinical trial protocols, um, we, we knew people would be questioning them and challenging them, and we'd have to spend a lot of communications energy explaining them. And uh, we came up with the idea just to post it on the website, post the whole clinical trial protocol on the website. And as you can imagine, the scientists just fell over. I mean, literally, they fell out of their seats, and they thought, this is, this is their intellectual property. This is what they've worked and patented and hid as a state secret for their whole careers, and we're going to put it on the internet. And we did. And the good news is nobody can understand it anyway. It was so <laughs> technical. Um, but it just changed the whole way that people felt about it. And you know, usually, it takes years to fill a clinical trial. These trials were filled in weeks, some months or weeks, and people were talking about it. I don't know if you remember in the New York Times, a woman, Molly Young Fast, who's kind of an, an editorial type and a blogger, uh, she outed herself as being in the clinical trial. And she said, I'm patient 1133. 
and she talked about being in the trial. I'd never seen anything like that. You know, that the people were talking about it all day long. I'm in the clinical trial. You know, my, my son is doing this, my daughter's doing that. And um, that made it a, a discussion at a scale that had never really happened before. And, and Sally, was all of that necessary because you knew as you went fast and operated with a sense of urgency that that would create some skepticism? Maybe they skipped steps. Maybe they cut corners to go faster. They didn't really ensure the safety of this vaccine. You know, you heard some of that skepticism, especially in places like the Internet. And so was the idea that by being so transparent and putting it all out there, you would hopefully instill some confidence? It was a number one driver. Because I thought, what a tragedy it will be if we come up with this vaccine and no one will take it. And we're, you know, we're not through that situation. And we've done well, but not good enough. And right now, 59% of America is vaccinated. And we need 70 to 80% for herd immunity um, and to prevent the morphing of other variants. And I've put a lot of heart and time and energy into these conversations, um, I don't say, I don't call anyone an anti-vaxxer. I think it's aggressive, undermining of trying to create connection and trust with people. Um, I, I believe that you have to have these conversations and listen, understand people's anxiety and their fear, um, and follow our research. Our research tells us that and you guys all know this, um, it's less about facts and figures and more about storytelling and, and people's own experiences. It's less about pol politicians, celebrities, uh, sports heroes, and it's more about your teacher, your neighbor, the barber, the preacher, you know, and your, the, the person you trust locally. So we have been working hard on it. Um, we're still working hard on it. There's a lot to do. And so let's get into that for just a second, Sally. It became political, which was sad and surprising um, in so many different ways. And it's is there any way we could have avoided that? And I guess it was hard because there was a transition of a presidency there. There was a very there were very outspoken people on all sides of this issue. So looking back, is is there anything you think we could have done differently? And, and how, how are you handling that side of things? Like, is, is there anything we could do now? I learned a lot during this process. And Pfizer is not a political organization. Um, we are not partisan in any way. But I do remember sitting on my sofa with a nice glass of Pinot Noir and a big bowl of popcorn, getting ready to watch the presidential debate between President Trump and then Vice President Biden. And I love politics, so I was like really settling in for a good night. And um, within the first answer, President Trump says, I was talking to the Pfizer CEO, and I know we're going to have some very good news before that very special day in November. You know, my flew my popcorn. <laughs> I start texting my boss, are you watching this? And he's like, yes, what are we going to do? And... Um, Sounds like that wasn't in the approved talking points. <laughs> no, it wasn't in the approved talking points. And I have to say, um, there was bad behavior on both sides. Um, it was not good that the president said that. And he was pushing us to have the vaccine come out before the election. But so too was the other side pushing us to not have it come out before the election. So I'm not 
casting aspersions in any direction here. But when that started happening, just like when the gentleman called you, uh, yes. the reporter, at when you were at Target, it was one of those moments, you know, you open up your laptop and you start typing. You just start typing. And I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter from Albert that I wanted to put in, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, saying just a couple key things. One is that we move at the speed of science, you know, not at the speed of politics, that Pfizer has an obligation to our 171-year-old legacy. This is people that brought you penicillin. You know, we're not uh, going to cut any corner. And, and that lastly, you know, we, we have an obligation to people and patients that we serve. So I write this beautiful letter. I pour my whole heart into it. Albert and I are texting back and forth. We love the letter. And nobody, nobody would take my letter. And I was so embarrassed and ashamed. I'm, you know, Pfizer, and I got to. And what I learned is the reason when I'm talking to the editorial people is they wanted us to swing back at the president and to accelerate the, the stress and to say he was ill-informed or, you know, talk about that he's pressuring us and twisting our arm. And I was trying to decelerate. I was trying to take the, the stress out of the system and nobody was interesting in, interested in my calming, scientific, thoughtful letter. So after beating my head against that for about a day and a half, two days, I knew I, I'd already run out of time to get this letter posted. We decided we'd put on our, our Pfizer.com. Well, it went immediately viral, this letter. And all those papers that had dissed me printed it <laughs> and, and wrote about it. And instead of getting one of them, I got all of them. And I also realized that while we were discovering a vaccine, we were also creating a content machine. And we started then to use that as our most common platform. And we would, whenever we had news, uh, an update, new clinical data, more information, we, all, we put on Pfizer.com. And that's the next question I actually have for you, Sally. If you have not looked at what Pfizer did take away the emotion and even what is said, if you go back and look at how they shared information from a communications point of view, it was brilliant work. And you started to communicate very directly. Mm -hmm. Instead of having various outlets go between and make it political, you just started to put the facts out there. And so I was curious about what led to that decision and all the different mediums that you used to communicate, but it felt constant. In this 24-7 cycle, it felt like you were all a step ahead of that. Well, you described it perfectly. Uh, we went direct, um, and then the papers were writing off the website, um, so they had less opportunity to editorialize. Um, but I think another component to it, and something I hope you look for in your own world, is a person, a principal, a client, in my case, my boss, who has the energy for it because, you know, he, he has to do, I mean, we write it, but he reviews it, he engages with it, he says, no, you sound too corporate. I mean, having, he was really an invaluable partner and a voice in this process. In fact, in the film that Nat Geo did, um, which is now on YouTube, if you wanna see it, it's called um, uh, making, the, making the Impossible Possible, um, Pfizer's Race for a Vaccine. Uh, Sounds appropriate. Yeah. Um, 
in, in the end, his voice became the, narrate, the narration. He became the narrator. It was never my plan or his plan, but it's because he's a very authentic and very good spokesperson. And so, Sally, talk about that 24-7 media environment. We all know we live in a 24-7 environment, but this morning I was watching CNBC getting ready for work, and the entire hour was, was COVID. And, and that's not you know because of what's happening today. That's been constant. And I have to say, like, I even have had to take a break from social media and the press at times because it just feels so overwhelming and depressing and too big. And, you know, I, I am almost grateful that I didn't understand in the beginning how long it would go on because I, I don't know if I emotionally could have handled it. How is your team handling that 24-7 environment? You must get inquiries every single day. You must get asked, what's your comment on this? What's your perspective on this? Will your CEO come on? How do you decide where you are going to engage and then where you're not going to engage? That is a great question. Um, well, right. I mean, I remember when I packed up my office back in that March of 2020 when, when I was telling you that Pfizer was shutting down but gearing up at the same time, I thought, two weeks. I'm going to be out for two weeks. That's a long time. I really better pack up all my supplies, you know, and I like took home things, um, Same. highlighter, you know, and um, so I never thought it would be two years. But again, we've been very fortunate because not only do we feel the purpose, we are optimistic at Pfizer that, you know, we science is going to win. And actually, that became our mantra. Uh, my friend Elise Stage is wearing her mask. She's from Pfizer also, and her mask says science will win. Um, and that became our, our, our drumbeat. Um, it, not Pfizer will win, not Pfizer will beat these other companies. In fact, we started to collaborate with the companies. We're working very closely with our former competitors. And that, that's a big, big change. And that's, and that's um, nurturing in a way. I mean, I, I talked to Michael at J&J. &J. Sure. I'm, I'm talking to all these people all the time. And so the combination of, of the purpose, the joy, the, the optimism that we feel about the products that we are making, both the vaccine and now a treatment, in case you get a breakthrough or you didn't take the vaccine, this treatment prevents by 90% the likelihood that you have to go to hospital. And no one who took the treatment has died. Um, not to say they won't, but um, that kind of is so fueling. And, you know, I hear you, you're kind of asking me this twice, like how do we manage the, the energy level? And of course my team is very tired, um, but they've pulled, they've pulled through based, I think, you know, they say that if a car fell on your child, you could lift the car. You know, it's lifting the car. We're lifting the car because we can and because we want to and because it's fun. And it, it does feel like the narrative is constantly changing as well. And so initially it was vaccine hesitancy, and now it is even with this new variant, are the vaccines working? And so you probably feel this need to constantly re-educate. We never said it didn't mean you wouldn't get COVID. It's just preventing. It sounds like, and help, help correct the record here, it's really about preventing hospitalization and some of the serious symptoms. Right. So... Um the vaccine um, worked really highly effectively with the original virus. And then every time there's a variant, we test the, the vaccine against the variant. So beta, delta, both of those 
held, the protection held very well with the existing vaccine. P.S., we also start making a new vaccine just in case. So we bring out a DNA template and we start working in case we would need it. We haven't had to do that yet. We've started them, but we don't finish them. Um, with Omicron, um, you know, the effectiveness of the two doses did go down. And it also was a time when the vaccine was already waning for a lot of people anyway. Um, so we tested both the booster as well as we are also working on a new vaccine in case we need it. But with the third boost, the, um, so the, the um, support, the protection has gone back up to the 95% level. So, you know, it's not, it's not going to, when, you know, millions and millions of people are out there getting vaccinated, a 5% amount is still a lot amount. And so there are numbers of people who still will get COVID, or there are people who break through. We all know those people. But the hope is then their, their symptoms are much less severe and, and that we reduce the hospitalization, which I feel very passionately about because these hospitals are overrun. I saw in the mid Midwest somewhere, hospitals were taking out ads begging people to get vaccinated. Um, you know, you're so kind to worry about my team, but I worry about the people in the hospitals. And talk about globally what Pfizer has done, because I, I know that one of the things you also read a lot about is in the U.S., we have the option to get the vaccine, but around the world, you saw vaccines rolling out sort of in different stages. Talk about, because I know Pfizer has done a lot of work to get vaccines um, available around the world. Thank you. I mean, it's a crushing situation when you have a global pandemic and you are making vaccines as quickly as you can and there aren't enough. I mean, it's it's a complex problem. Um, and so, you know, we decided that price should never be a barrier to vaccination. So here in the U.S., after we had discovered the vaccine and, and tested it and manufactured it, people called up and like, well, what does it cost? And we're, we're we don't know. We hadn't actually thought about it. Um, we hadn't even had time to think about it. And typically, when a drug company um, comes up with a price, they, they study the, the um, positive benefits for society, they talk to the patient groups, they talk to the insurance companies. With that traditional model, we could have charged anything we wanted. We could have charged $10,000 a dose, and we'd have had people lined up. Um, but we, char we charged the um, developed countries $19.50. Um, we charge the mid-tier countries half that, um, and we donated it, gave it for free uh, to the most vulnerable and low- and middle-income countries. So price was never going to be a barrier, but supply was a barrier. And so the countries that signed up for our vaccine first got them first. You know, we didn't want to play God. Not to say, hmm, I think I'll send them to Canada because they're nice people. Mm -hmm. Or I think I'll send them to France. Um, the people whose government signed up for them and signed their contracts got them first. And my boss would be on the phone with, in the low income and the poor countries with these people begging them to sign up. But, you know, there were six vaccines out there at the time. And so, you know, we, we have now made massive improvements in the amount we can produce. We originally had hoped uh, to produce 100 million in 2022. No, sorry, 100 million in, 20, in, sorry, in 2020, a billion 
2022. We, we've produced over 3 billion this year. Did I hear crap? It's worth applause, <laughs> yes, it's worth crap? applause. Um, and, and we will produce 4 billion next year. And we are working with other manufacturers so that other people can produce. And we will have the supply. And then between the vaccine supply and the medicine for people who uh, do get COVID, I think it's a, it's game change. And then this becomes like the flu. And we can, we can be safe and confident and go about our lives. We're all looking forward to that day. Okay, so last question, and I'll open it up to the audience. Um, Sally, despite everything going on in her life, touched base with me several times during this pandemic. Uh, she touched base with me last year during the holidays. She checked in with me um, over the summer. And so you are one of those incredible leaders that just is constantly looking out and thinking about others. And I feel so lucky to have you in my orbit. Uh, but one of the things you said when we talked is you talked about in terms of career, and I, I won't share your age here publicly, but you said when a lot of people would be thinking about the end of their career, that you had just had this opportunity to learn and experience and what it was like to be in the midst of this in such a critical role where governance and how you're working with world bodies and communication is so critical and how challenging and yet inspiring it was for you. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about you know, what that moment was like for you as a leader. You've worked at some incredible places. Yeah. To your first point about fixing a reputation, I recently talked to a young, young woman who said, I'm looking to apply to Pfizer. Yay. And so, yes, I, I would say that, you know, you've done that and then some. So can you talk about sort of this stage of your journey? Sure. So, um, you know, b before the pandemic, I was starting to think, hmm, been there done that. I've worked uh, since in communications, more or less, since the day I graduated college in 1984. Um, I've loved it. I've loved every minute of it. Um, you know, being able to know people like Dusty and, and hopefully many of you, um, you know, people in comms are curious, creative, usually kind of news junkies, political junkies, just really interesting people from all kinds of different backgrounds. Um, and I loved it, but I wasn't really sure there was much more for me to do. Um, and then, you know, the pandemic came and I was stretched. And I, I actually thought, I need, I need everything I've got for this. You know, I, I need everything I've learned. Um, the people I've had the honor to learn from, I could hear their voices in, my, in the back of my ear. I, I worked for Leonard Lauder when I worked at the Lauder companies. And he always was, he was obsessive about thank you notes. He would be like, did you write a thank you note to this editor or that editor? Um, and so I had this moment during the pandemic when we decided to take out full page ads in the newspapers, thanking the people in the clinical trials, thanking the scientists who, who worked so hard, thanking the hospital workers, because I had learned that from Leonard. And there were a hundred examples like that, of learn, having learned from people. But I was, and I was learning in the moment. Um, Last month I turned 60 and, and um, you know, I, I feel really energized and, and just excited to be doing what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I've written a bit about that turning 60 um, in. You can read it on her LinkedIn. It's, it's out. It's all out there. It's on the LinkedIn. Um, and 
in May of 2020, I wrote an article that was in Time Magazine about the decision to stop dyeing my hair blonde. I had been blonde, you know, my whole professional life. Um, and I just decided that this pandemic had changed me. Um, I didn't feel blonde anymore. Um, I, I wanted to be more authentic. And um, so I, I did this. And um, it's just been an incredibly energizing thing. And the one moment, can I share yes, your positive? Let's, we talked about the low. Let's hear the high. Um, the high happened on November 9, um, 2021. Wait, where are we? No, November 9, 2020. I get a call on Sunday to come to, we have a little satellite office out in Connecticut that five of us needed to get out there ASAP. Um, so it was me, our chief scientific officer, our general counsel, the CEO, the chief of staff. Why? Because we're gonna find out whether or not the vaccine works. So who's trailing along behind me but the camera crew, okay, <laughs> from Nat Geo. And I was thinking, oh no, no, no. No you can't pressure. Come. No, you can't come. But you know, I was too far in, it was too far gone. And we get there and the FDA is meeting on a Sunday because this is a pandemic. And they've been looking at our data and they're final, finalizing their review. And we're waiting and we're waiting and it's taking forever and we're trying to kill time. We're watching the news. They tell us to gather in the conference room and it, you know, it was uh, on WebEx and the screen is fuzzy. I mean, it felt like you're watching the uh, movie of Apollo 19 and you don't know if it's going to land on the moon or not. And then all of a sudden our scientist comes on, he's come out of the, the meeting, he says, we have good news that the vaccine is so effective, they want us to stop all clinical trials and move immediately to emergency use authorization. And we had been guessing and we had a bet going of would the efficacy be 50%, 60%, maybe 65%, um, because that's what most vaccines are. And our chief scientific officer had said 60%. And when they said 95, uh, no, we're like, what? <laughs> okay, we thought we misheard. We said, is it 19? Are you saying 19? That no, it was 95. And um, it is a moment I will never forget. It, it is recorded on the in the documentary, but uh, but I don't need to look at it because I'll. It's the most important moment in my professional life, and I'll never forget it. And I'm so grateful to have had it. And I'm very grateful for the, have the chance to tell the story. So thank you. We're so grateful to you, Sally, and the whole team over there at Pfizer. It's incredible. So I would love to open it up to you. We have a few minutes for audience questions. I see one back here. You might want to just, do we have a mic? Oh, excellent. Hi, thank you so much, both of you, for that um, really engaging and incredible talk. It's just historic. Um, and thank you in particular, uh, personally, and as a professional for all that you gave up. Um, that work was incredibly important. Um, two questions unrelated, and you know you can take them in any order, but uh, obviously as a head of a communications, you have crisis communication playbooks, you know, up on the shelf or in the digital files, you're ready. You know, but how in the world, you, you couldn't have possibly anticipated this, but I'd, I'd love to hear from what degree do you feel was there a global pandemic, uh, you know, playbook, and you had holding statements and things, or were you just 
really, this was so unique that you're starting from scratch. Then my second question is talking about that brand transformation. You know, you've gone from zero to 200 and, um, <laughs> you know, that's not sustainable and it, it, it's almost uh, too high of a bar. So where do you go here from here with the brand? Um, what's that next chapter? Maybe that's too soon to ask. No, no, we ask, we're asking it all the time. Um, so thank you for your questions. What is your name? I'm Jennifer Elliott. Nice to meet you. Jennifer. Nice to meet you too. Um, so um, in terms of the playbook, forget the playbook, okay? Um, <laughs> but those crisis exercises are very good to do um, because in the end, you don't really need a playbook. You need to have your muscles ready to go. Mm. You know, so things like knowing what your values are. We have at Pfizer four values, courage, excellence, equity, and joy. Can't have equity and not have a plan to get vaccines to Africa or to other, you know, poor countries. Um, you need to have your team be the best team. You can't start recruiting in a crisis. Mm -hmm. You have to have really good relationships. It's not, you know, you, if you're gonna start networking in a crisis, you've, you're, it's over. Um, you know, you need to have important reporters on speed dial. Um, and so it's really about having the, the qualities of your corporate character, of your company character, of your agency character, and to keep those in great shape. Um, you know, these are hugely important assets that you will need in a crisis. Um, in terms of the brand identity piece, um, we actually changed our corporate brand in the middle of all of this. And, and how that happened is prior to the pandemic, I had a new CEO, we had a new purpose statement, and I had been working on, an, on a new logo for the company. You may remember the old blue logo was like an oval. We called it an oval, and it was very compact. It was like a shield. It was quite cold, and it, it read to people sort of financial powerhouse. Um, didn't have a lot of humanity in it or a lot of science in it. So we were working on different brands, and then the pandemic hit, and I put that thing in the bottom drawer. Like I had no time to be dealing with that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that November day, where we got the incredible uh, results, I, I had this idea to pull out the new brand. And I talked to a couple of my peers in the company. I said, what, what would you think if we changed the Pfizer brand right now? And some of them said, no, don't do it now, because things are finally going good. You know, and, and people are starting to look to the Blue Shield as a sign of trust in a 170-year-old company. I then went to our chief digital officer, Lydia Fonseca. She's a change agent. I said, Lydia, what do you think? She says, you got to do it now because we're on the move. And so then I went to Albert, my boss, and I said, I think we should change the logo. What do you think? He's like, do whatever you think, okay? Which was the best, it's the best answer. Um, so I decided to do it. I couldn't sleep the night before. I thought we're, people are going to ridicule it. I mean, it, you know, it's a skeptical thing when you change a brand. People think you're hiding something. But we did it, and now it's this sort of beautiful purple and blue. Um, it's the oval blown up and now in a very science-friendly, science-forward form. We, took the, we kept the name. Um, we kept the old-fashioned font to show the history. But it's floating. It's not encased in a bubble. Um, and so to create this new brand, new company, 
it's a life sciences company now, not a pharma company. And we, ha we know we only have two places to go. There is no staying where we are. Either we will drop back down or we will take it to a new height. So we are looking to do equally bold things going forward to try to take it to a new height. Wow, incredible. Thank you so much. Hi, both. Thank you so much for this great discussion. Um, so I am a, an agency partner to Pfizer. I work for an agency partner group, SJR. And we have created um, a lot of content for you guys, particularly for Get Science, now Breakthroughs, now probably even something else. But one of the things that we produced was a bunch of infographics about mRNA technology. They were fantastic. Back in 2019, thank you, um, and very early 2020. And this was about the flu vaccine and changing the way that we you know, receive the flu vaccine and how it could get it right every single year. Then the pandemic came around and we found out that this technology was gonna be used for COVID. And I thought, wonderful, the COVID vaccine is gonna be perfect, awesome, super high efficacy. I'm gonna sign right up for it. Obviously, I was very much uh, in the minority for this. And I, my question is, and I wonder what your thoughts are about um, how you might communicate things like this in the future. And if you think that maybe communicating the merits of mRNA, something that had not been used for the flu vaccine yet, but would soon turn into something life-changing for all of us, um, what that difference would be. Particularly, I convinced my mom to get vaccinated because of this anecdote. And she said, oh, it's been around for longer than just March 2020? Great, okay, that seems right. Yeah, see, you're proving my point about, you know, it's not a celebrity, it's a, it's a well-informed daughter that can make all the difference. And right. I really um, want to thank SJR, and there are several agency partners in the room tonight, and we couldn't have done it without our agency colleagues. Um, there's just no way. Um, and I was saying to Ed Harniga, who's our chief communications officer, a member of my team, um, today or yesterday, that we need a whole new set of infographics around two things. One, how does the pill work, okay? Which we're all very excited about the pill as well. We haven't even gotten into that yet. Very exciting breakthrough. Um, and the other thing is, um, how does distribution and manufacturing work? Because that is really um, a crucial part of it. And a lot of people like to think about the glory of the science and it's um, really um, you know, sexy, the science, science will win and all that. But the manufacturing is pretty cool too. And it no longer has to stay at minus 70 Celsius. Um, we can now transport it in regular uh, pharmaceutical refrigeration. But these kind of multiple tools that you're talking about, videos, you know, um, little digestible, bite-sized, shareable stuff we can put on our various channels, is the, that content machine we created is a hungry beast. And so, we are feeding it all the time. And again, you know, really educating more than selling. I mean, we don't need to sell the vaccine, okay? We don't need to sell the tablet. Um, they're not, they will go. Um, it's, but we want it to go in a way that people have trust and they feel good about it. Thank you. Hi, Sally. I'm Erin Stiles. I'm on Dusty's team at Spotify. And also we're a huge fan of group SJR as well. They're an amazing partner to us. Um, 
a couple of questions, but take them as you will. Um, we think a lot about our relationship with the media. Our CEO, Daniel Ack, is really pushing us to Very cool maybe guy. be less reliant on the media, do more own channel storytelling. And so when you talk about that op-ed that you wrote and had a hard time getting it placed and had the pushback, and then you ended up putting it on your website and it was really successful, are you guys thinking about doing more of that in the future? And how has that changed your relationship with the media? It's a great question. And I so admire your company. Um, I think I read something recently that, are you doing like audience uh, sourcing for the podcast popularity? Um, I, I read this, that your people can say yes. they like it. Yes. Um, and then rating. 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 Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, see, that is... That is the same kind of thing. It's empowering your direct relationship with your customers. You know, that they can talk back to you and you can talk to them directly. You know, I, I mean, I don't think the media is going out of business, but I, I think it is so fundamentally changed from how when I started my career that, I mean, the word media is about mediate, that they used to go gather the facts, and then they would mediate the decisions for the benefits of their readers and educate their readers. That's not what they do anymore. They have a bias, so much bias, so much opinion, um, that your, your CEO is a brilliant person. I've listened to him talk, and he's absolutely right that media as we know it is gonna continue to devolve, and those who win will be those who can speak directly to their customers. Very cool. Hi, Sally. Thank you so much um, for being so transparent and, and open about your journey. Um, I'm with Havas, so I'm another one of your agency partners that's here. Uh, my question to you is, as a fellow health and wellness person, to what degree do you think we can transfer the excitement around science um, and the excitement and knowledge around things like clinical trials to other indications in the future? It's happening. Um, you know, more. I, I read that more people are enrolling in medical school than ever before, you know, that science classes are enrolled in colleges and universities like never before. And when the question came up earlier about what else can Pfizer do, we're trying to apply light speed, all these principles um, to every therapeutic area we have. I mean, there are, there are terrible uh, diseases and tough conditions, you know, that have had no new medicine in 50 years or 75 years. That's going to change. We're in, a, we're in a science renaissance. We're in a medical renaissance. And thank you, Havas, for, for your help with that. Thank you so much. Yep. And have inspired all of us. So thank oh, you. thanks. You've not only changed as far as brand perception, as far as brand love, but you've kind of changed people's um, understanding of what a pharma company can do and how a pharma company can communicate also, um, as far as the authenticity that we saw in that conference room with you guys with that day when Albert like yelled, I love you, I think, to the person on the screen. <laughs> and we hugged that, that in a socially geo. distant yeah, way. It was so, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so I'm, I guess I'm not giving up my question, but, but do you think those things are gonna are gonna last like that authenticity? It's gonna, it has to. We we have to because I mean, it's so the, the, refreshing. The, it's... The, our greatest threat is arrogance and complacency. Okay, so if if I'm being arrogant or complacent, stop me and tell me because I can't. We can't be. Um, and I, that is my job now is to is to defeat arrogance. I mean, I don't see it in the company today, but it's my worry 
And that's what I have to guard against and what we have to guard against if we want to continue to thrive and, and achieve new great things. And you already answered the second half of my question, which is about the speed. Will that continue? About the light speed? Because that's, that's, it's just amazing. Yeah. So congrats Thank on you. all that. Okay, so that's it for the evening. Sally, this was such an incredible pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much. You. Really fun. So now you understand a little bit more about our In the Room series. I hope you will tell others. I hope you will join us in the future. We look forward to doing another event in February. And I should also mention that Sally is a, also a former Matrix winner. And so hopefully you're familiar with the Matrix Awards. Um, but we really appreciate you being here. Sally, I'm honored to be in the same field as you. I'm honored to call you a friend. Thank and you. I'm honored tonight to get to learn from you. Thank you Thank so, you. so Thanks. much. You've been listening to Women Heard, presented by New York Women in Communications. I'm your host, Julie hockheiser Ilkovich. Thank you to the amazing team that works on this podcast. Chelsea Orcutt, Elizabeth Roberts, Chrisanne Grise, Mandy Carr, Shania Anderson, and Alex Fetter, who wrote our original theme music. And thank you to everyone at New York Wiki who supports us. For more information about Women Heard, go to nywiki.org slash podcast. That's nywiki.org slash podcast. Thanks for listening.